0: Welcome to The O Podcast, an audio companion to Tufts' oldest publication, The Observer Magazine. This podcast is released alongside each print issue of The Observer. Here, we aim to delve deeper into the topics explored in the articles, consider new perspectives, and uplift voices from the print issue and beyond. In the first segment of this episode, our Voices team had a conversation with Haruka Noishiki about her piece. Pas de Panique, a reflection on the uncertainty of being sent home from study abroad as an international student. Carolina Olea Lizama and Rabia Ismail wrote an opinion piece for the print issue titled Progressing Forward, Going Nowhere. Why local sororities are still part of the problem. In our second segment, our news and opinion team spoke with Rabia and Carolina about their motivations behind the article, how they feel in light of the response and what they envision for the future of Tufts Sorority and Fraternity Life. In our final segment, our Arts and Culture team asked seniors to reflect on what destination means to them, looking back on their time at Tufts and sharing their plans for the future. My name is Sophia, and my name is Flo, and we're the co-directors of the Observer Audio team. As the semester comes to a close, we want to thank our listeners and the incredible members of the O! Podcast team Deki, Jamie, Emma, Reina, Hana, Suhasani, and Alexis for all of their hard work this semester. The O Podcast is proud to present our final episode of the semester, Destination.
1: In this month's issue of The Observer, Haruka Noishiki's essay, Padupahinik Haruka, describes the tumultuous experience of an international experience studying abroad at the start of the pandemic and the lessons Paris taught her about slowing down and finding the solution to every seemingly unsolvable problem.
2: Today, we speak to Haruka about her writing process, her perspective on the international student experience, and her new podcast, Minimal Moves. I'm Alexis. I'm Zoharsini. And I'm Hana. Let's get into it. Hi Haruka, thank you for speaking with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So you wrote a beautiful piece on your time studying abroad in Paris and your return to the US at the beginning of the pandemic. One aspect of your piece that we enjoyed was the repetition of the phrase pas de panique. Was that something that came up organically or was it something that you always planned to do?
1: I think it um, was something that came to me as I was kind of thinking back to my time in Paris and the person who said the phrase had said it repeatedly kind of throughout my time. And as I was reflecting, it sort of kind of naturally paralleled, I guess, sort of the time that was spent abroad and also um, the reflection itself. So I guess kind of more of the latter.
2: And who first introduced you to that phrase?
1: It was the uh, Tufts in Paris director um, who is still in Paris. And she would always remind us to not panic when um, something little would go wrong because we're in a different environment, and it might seem like a big deal, um, but it's just not as it's usually solvable, and that's what kind of she was trying to remind us, I think. How did it feel to write this piece almost a year later with
2: the pandemic still going on?
1: That's an interesting question. I think that because it was a sudden end to things, as in it was a really abrupt change, none of us could have expected it and whatnot it still feels like it hasn't fully concluded and therefore writing about it now feels almost not too different than writing about it, say like half a year ago or maybe in half a year. I feel like it's kind of like an unfinished story in a way, as cliche as that sounds. Um, so it's kind of like I'm reflecting on like any other life life event really, um, because it just feels so incomplete.
2: So how was it for you writing this piece did it help you to create a sense of calm working through those experiences, turning them into this
1: narrative? I would I'd actually back in, I think this was back in April or so, um, written a completely unrelated piece, but still on the experience of sort of being international. Um, and what had initially brought that on was the experience of leaving Paris. Um, but that piece had been focused more on sort of the general international student experience. So that, but also being an international student in the U.S., and then this piece kind of follows up on that in a way um but is focused more on the Paris experience and i think does the i think in a way the um original piece that was focused on the international student experience was more of a trying to digest kind of a piece um and then i think this piece is more of a sort of like um i don't think honoring is the right word necessarily but kind of like a doing the, the Paris experience a bit more justice and shedding a bit more light to the main experience itself instead of just the sort of mass of this moment. Um, so I think that this piece was um, sort of fun to write about because it was a bit more focused on the activities and sort of daily ongoings itself. Um, so I guess, I guess it was maybe more of a um, calmly enjoyable reflection piece. One
2: thing that really resonated with me as an international student in your essay was the anxieties of getting in and out of the U.S. with borders shutting down at the start of the pandemic. So do you think you could tell us a bit more about what that experience was like for you coming back from Paris?
1: For the specific um, leaving Paris moment, um, it was, I think it helped me realize, and also in the ensuing months of kind of immigration back and forth, that the Um, the US government and um, I think some universities were negotiating with them or um, I think brought the case to court maybe I don't remember the exact details but I think that those months kind of really reminded me how uncertain it is to be an international student and it's kind of a I think it's a for me an odd identity aspect because it's not something that's as inherent as like race um, as in if I had just been born and brought up in my home country which is Japan. I wouldn't have obviously had this experience and um, it's kind of a self-selected sort of identity aspect. Um, So I think that that, those um, months in April through June or July or whatever that might have been, I think really reminded me how, first of all, this was kind of my choice in my case at least. And then second of all, how um, this choice that I made can really make um, life more challenging, I guess, even in the same academic context. Um, So that's kind of what those months sort of meant to me as an international student. Um, And I think since being an international student has kind of grown more of an obstacle, um, which I didn't realize when I was a first year or um, sophomore at Tufts because of the job search process and the pandemic. Um, So I think there's definitely the pandemic effect um, going on there as well. What would you like most for readers to take away from your article and your experience? Generally when I write, I I write for the sake of writing, which may not be the best thing. Um I I feel like my um general I guess take home is just add another perspective into the international students experience and I think something that hopefully will help um, just shed light to different experiences. Um, I know that there were other international students who were also leaving their broadsides or even in general um, with, the, with anything related to the job search or um, physical security of being in the US and other aspects. There are not only the international student factor, but various other intersecting um, experiences and identities that can really shape um, how, how easily people are able to navigate those things that shouldn't be as complicated as they are. So I guess um, kind of bringing attention to that would be my central message.
2: Now I know that you have your own podcast. Would you like to tell us a bit about that?
1: I'd love to. Um, thank you. That that podcast. Um, I sometimes speak to the international students' experience, um, and career development as well, which is not central to the focus of the podcast, but it's called Minimal Moves, um, and. The main themes of it is minimalism, sustainability, and decluttering, but I draw a lot on my cultural background, being Japanese and growing up with kind of traditional values, and then also melding in what I've learned in the U.S. and um, kind of ongoing experiences. So um, that's my podcast that I have. Where is that able, like, where can we find that to listen? It's on most podcast streaming uh, platforms, so Spotify, Apple, and um, anywhere else where people generally listen to podcasts.
2: Do you have any specific quotes or passages
1: you would like to read to leave us with? A year later, I remember Paris with a glow smudged with a little bit of smoke from the various protests. In the 14th arrondissement, I would briskly walk by cars on fire, a sharp contrast from the quiet tour we had just finished in the film museum down the street. Padupanique. panique. I remember our first weeks without a functioning metro. This dysfunction shouldn't have caught us American students off guard, with our experiences with the MBTA sometimes on fire, but it did give us dilemmas of showing up to class an hour later with beads of sweat marking our unexpected long walks across the city. I'm glad that local program staff were lenient enough that I had the time to look around on these hasty walks. I'm glad that our program befriended the crepe maker, Henri with a stand on Rue Montparnasse that had the best churros. They were 24 for 12 euros, perfect for sharing in the hallways of the Strictly No Food Upstairs Cultural Center where we took classes.
3: The Abolish Greek Life movement took Tufts campus by storm. At Abolish Tufts, IFC and Panhellenic on Instagram, an account that gives voice to victims of harassment and abuse within the Greek life system has gained over 1,700 followers since the summer. Over a thousand students signed a petition to ban Greek life from campus outraged by the experiences of racism, misogyny, classism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, and sexual assault occurring under the IFC and Panhell system. As a result, many members of fraternities and sororities have dropped their affiliations and left Greek life entirely, while others left to form their own new local sororities. These new sororities and existing Greek life organizations have pledged to implement diversity, equity, and inclusion practices into their activities. Yet, the anti-Greek life movement still rages on. The Tufts Observer, in issue 4 Destination, published the article titled "Progressing Forward, Going Nowhere: Why Local Sororities Are Still Part of the Problem," written by Catalina Olea Lizama and Rabia Ismail. This opinion piece calls out Greek life and new sororities at Tufts for racist, anti queer, and anti low income practices. This article has awoken discussions university wide about the status and the morality of Greek life at Tufts. My name is Emma Downs, and today you'll be hearing from these women about their motivations behind the article, how they feel in light of the response. And their vision for the future of tough sorority and fraternity life.
4: My name is Carolina olale Sama. I'm a junior and I use the she series pronouns.
3: My name is Rubia Ismail. I use she, hers, and I'm in the class of 2022. Thank you both for being here. Your article heavily critiques new local sororities formed in the wake of the abolished Greek life movement. So, first off, tell our listeners more about these local sororities. What are they and how did they form in your understanding?
5: Alpha Phi members were frustrated at like racism and other problems within the space and decided to disaffiliate from their national chapter and create a local chapter of a new authority which was then called the Ivy but it's comprised of most Alpha Phi members and then Talia is basically the same thing, but people who decided to drop Kyo rather than completely disaffiliate because there are still a few members of Kayo and create a new local sorority as well. And I think like just essentially it's trying to get yourself out of that national like message that they have, which I think the members thought was not inclusive. Thank you
3: for that helpful explanation. It leads me to wonder how did you both get inspired to write your article on these sororities?
5: After they were formed, I talked to a few friends who were in like the original sororities and they had decided to like stay in those OG ones because they just didn't see the point of going to the same exact sorority as that was how they described it. And that's kind of what I think pushed. Got also to write the article in general it just kind of feels tone deaf to be doing that and saying that they're doing something to promote diversity equity and inclusion.
4: I mean I'm a first gen low income Latina you know woman of color I started entering a lot of like my, my community spaces and just realizing the lack of resources that were available for my community members Greek Life has all these spaces and resources that people have been asking or like marginalized communities need and I think once these local sororities popped up. I think um, it was just kind of frustrating because we knew that they were going to also want to request some of these resources. As like a community senator, I've learned about a lot of the history that Greek life has had with communities of color at Tufts, And so I think it was like really important for me to like voice a lot of these concerns. And I think it's also like important because a lot of people just did not know about a lot of this. I've learned so much from it myself, like reading it and like by word of mouth.
3: In response to the article after it was published, one thing Caro learned from her peers was that Tufts' new local sorority Talia borrowed the name from a local chapter at Tufts created originally by two black women in 1956. These women were the first black women to join Greek life at Tufts ever through Sigma Kappa, but the national organization of Sigma Kappa ended up revoking their charter in response. So, these women formed their own organization called Talia with inclusion at the forefront of their values. Rabia, tell me more about this response and what you know about Talia. Talia was named in honor of two Black women um, who
5: made a local sorority basically a few decades ago because they experienced racism in original and traditional Greek life. And friends who were involved said that there is not a single Black woman who was involved in the founding founding membership of Talia, it was also brought up a few times and nothing was done about it. If you're not even listening to your own members about this, who are Black, who are expressing concern, who are you going to listen to? It just feels like a cognitive dissonance in a way to kind of be using the name and trying to honor that, but actually doing a disservice to it.
3: I certainly had no idea. I want to go a little further into this idea of excluding and ignoring voices. Your article not only touches upon how black and brown students are harmed and don't feel welcome in Greek life, but Asian, Jewish, and queer students as well. Can you tell me a little more about the exclusivity of Greek life and its treatment of trans and non-binary individuals?
5: Inherently traditional Greek life has failed to acknowledge the transgender existence. There are people who are insane that they're trying to include queer, non-binary students and... I just don't think that is possible when like the right terms aren't even used and when people are trying to include people in the system that they might not even feel comfortable getting involved with in the first place.
4: With these local sororities, if you're like claiming to like be all inclusive of people and supporting it, it's important that like they do the work to fully understand what that means and fully create that environment where people feel safe. And that's not to say that There isn't trans people in Greek life now, but I think that there's like ways to do so and continue learning and that you should have like the knowledge and the tools to support different people and like different identities before fully advertising that.
5: I also think it's very important for them to be reaching out to people that they're trying to include and learn from them of what the best way to include them is. And if that might be something like abolishing the system or, you know, giving them resources, then that's definitely the best way to go about it.
3: Another group you mentioned that's excluded from Greek life are low-income students. Some may argue that Greek life at Tufts is not classist, as sororities and fraternities provide funds for these students to participate in Greek life dues and events. What barriers do you think still remain to the integration of low-income students in Greek life? Even though some of the local sororities and I'm sure some of the older sororities cover
5: 100% of financial aid or like requested financial aid who's to say that a low-income student is going to feel comfortable enough to even request or apply for that aid in the first place the fact that you have to put yourself out there as someone who can't afford it and first of all in a university that is very very wealthy and second in this in a space that you might be entering that you know is also very wealthy um I mean I am low-income I would never do that
4: there's so many costs to be in that space. When I think about myself and the ways that I feel when I'm with my friends, are predominantly like first-gen, low-income community, we all have that understanding of like where we come from and the resources that we have. And we're not always, like we always try to plan around being mindful of money versus when I might hang out with other friends who don't understand that.
5: I can't see a, a world where you're able to participate in all those events, both inside and outside of Greek life that are related to the organization, and then also keeping your mental health up and also not being the only person who has to speak up for yourself.
3: Your article points to the fact that the concerns with Greek life are structural, deep and beyond modification, and you write that the Greek houses are, quote, pillars of white supremacy in which many students feel they cannot survive. It appears that some members of the Tufts community agree, while others strongly disagree with you. Sororities and fraternities themselves responding to your words. What has it been like for you both to receive this strong response?
4: It's just frustrating that, like, the immediate response is defensiveness. The immediate one is, I'm going to look and pick all the things that make me angry about this that are, like, wrong, and all the reasons why you're—instead of being like, oh, wow maybe I didn't do this the way I thought or like maybe this isn't what I thought it was going to be or like this is where I made mistakes you know and I think that's like the importance of growing no one's calling out individual people the fact that white
5: people might have their feelings hurt from this article and the reality of Greek life and it's racism that it perpetuates think about the actual harm that is not just feelings based that it perpetuates onto black and brown people think about the amount of people your organization has probably harmed over the hundreds of years that it's been in in existence and I also do want to acknowledge that there are definitely women of color involved in these organizations that you know just do it because it makes them happy and I feel like that is totally fine that is something that I definitely respect and like if that person's also working towards the goal of making Greek life more inclusive that's very understandable on the other hand I think if you're someone who is just consistently defending Greek life and the Racist systems that it upholds, there's a big difference there.
3: So, I have a question. What in your ideal world would be the response to your article?
5: It would have been people acknowledging the harm that they've caused by creating these new local sororities and either, you know, dismantling the organization that they've just built or just like taking a pause and being like, wait, why do we have the same exact racial demographics mainly? and then recognize that there was not a lot of brown and black women and non-binary people and trans people who were rushing, if they had recognized that and stopped in in that moment and been like, what can we do now to make sure that our practices are actually inclusive? And that could have looked like maybe the Ivy could have gone and partnered with like a civic organization on campus or like an activist organization on campus and maybe they could have like co-hosted an event and then showed people and like tried to get those people to come because they showed that they were like really into what the missions of those clubs were preaching.
3: Speaking of other organizations and spaces on campus, you touch upon in your article how some of the appealing aspects of Greek life, like philanthropy or friendship and sisterhood, could be fulfilled through other means on campus. We have like a women's center and
4: like, we don't, they don't even have a director. There's other ways to create community, especially for like women. There's so many incredible people that go to the women's center and they need a lot of more resources to be able to reach a wider community. And there's other work that you could have been doing instead of creating like a new local
3: sorority. What frustrates you most about Tufts' response to the abolished Greek life movement? Tufts as an institution needs to do better. And that means that they need to
5: recognize which systems that they have in place that are perpetuating those type of racist activities that are happening, right? And that also includes Greek life. Yeah,
4: I think another thing, like, Tufts just has to also put more support and figure out better ways to handle sexual assault and things like that. Because unfortunately, if anything happens outside of the Tufts campus, people live off campus, if anything happens off campus, and they're like, that's not in our purview, like, we can't deal with it. And so ensuring that, like, everyone is safe, like, in those spaces
3: so what do you think tufts should do about greek life post summer a ton of schools have abolished greek life
5: and i think it's disappointing and both embarrassing that tufts hasn't i genuinely think that the way to move forward is to abolish it and give those houses to spaces that need it more for students more marginalized students That would just influence way more students who are marginalized to choose Tufts as a school, first of all, because they would actually see that Tufts might care for them, and then also make students feel more included in the campus itself. I think it's very important to think about how we talk about reform versus abolish. It's important to make sure that you are focusing on abolishing a system that is inherently and historically has been built on like systemic oppression, and that's something that like Greek life has also been built on.
3: Thank you both for speaking with me. Listeners, make sure to read their article, Progressing Forward, Going Nowhere, in the latest issue of The Observer. My name is Emma Downs. Thank you for listening to Rabia, Catalina, and I's discussion on the status, ethicality, and future of old and new Greek life on campus. It's been a pleasure.
6: I think tough people have a genuine quality that you don't really find in a lot of other people, and I really enjoy that because it just makes for getting to know someone easier. It, it makes relationships and connections easier, and I, I like really enjoy the people and all my friends that I made here.
7: As the school year comes to a close, we wanted to say a final goodbye to our seniors.
2: My name is Dave.
7: And my name is Jamie.
2: Although many things about this year's graduation have been far from what we would have hoped and expected, the sentiment of graduating alongside your best friends and carrying with you the beautiful mess of memories from the past four years remains poignant as ever. And with that, we pass the mic on the Class of 2021, as they look back on their past four years and forward on to the next chapter. What are you most excited about after graduation?
6: So my, or the thing I'm looking forward to most after graduation is uh, moving to New York with my friends and living in a big city because um, I think the past four years in Medford have been, um, they've been been nice, but I think I'm ready for something bigger. So I think it's going to be really exciting to go to a place where I don't know everyone and um, like everything's really chaotic. So I'm looking forward to that.
7: What I'm most excited for. I'm most excited to like finally be like an adult and like a real person and get to be fully in charge of my own choices and continue to just like learn about the world, learn about things and yeah.
8: I think I'm really excited to do the thing that I've wanted to do for a really long time, physics, because there was a point like early college where I was like, oh, I actually do want to go to grad school, where I didn't think I wanted, I didn't really think that was an option for me or that I would be like good enough to go to grad school. And so then like getting in to the program that I wanted to get into, going to grad school, doing physics, I think I'm really excited for that.
9: Um, bro, honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind when you ask me what I'm most excited about for my future is, like, just having my own money, like, working and having, like, my own money. Because I think that's, like, when you have that, like, that's, like, the biggest step towards, like, independence, really.
2: And... What is your favorite memory or favorite thing from college?
8: So my favorite memory of college is freshman year, or one of them. The one that I can remember right now is freshman year. Um, I actually have the date right in front of me. It was March 13th, 2018, um, and it was a snow day. And I was in my room with my freshman year roommate, now observer, Vassant, I don't know what word to use. Observer, Connoisseur, Observer, um, Extraordinaire, Alice Hickson. <laughs> and we saw the snow and we were like, we should go outside, we should go sledding. And so she got all of her friends together and I just tagged along and we went sledding and it was so much fun. And then we came back and we drank hot chocolate that Alice tried to spike with vodka And it was disgusting, but it was a lot of fun. And we just had a great time. And that's one of my favorite memories of college.
6: I think from all the other schools and other people I've met that go to other schools, I think tough people have a genuine quality that you don't really find in a lot of other people. And I really enjoy that because it just makes for Getting to know someone easier, it, it makes relationships and connections easier. And I I like really enjoy the people and all my friends that I made here.
7: Oh yeah, there was one day where um, like way, way pre-COVID, I think it was sophomore year, where um, I went with a group of friends to about like an hour away from Tufts. It was, it was like this huge quarry and it was just like a really beautiful place and we just kind of sat there like baking in the sun all day and we like came across this like 50 foot um, like cliff edge that fell onto the quarry I went cliff diving and it was just really, really fun. Um,
9: I think one of my favorite memories now, not then was um, getting Thames, and then going to, like, the crew tryouts.
8: Um, what has Tophs taught you? Um, don't get Thames. It's okay if you do, but don't do it. Just kidding, don't put... I think I really learned how to, like, prioritize, like, the people and the things that, like, make me feel best and happiest and that was like a long time coming I guess is like most people would probably relate to that like early childhood and (laughs) and middle school and high school you're just kind of friends with people because you have to be but then like college that kind of goes away and so you have to make like a lot you like don't you like can make more explicit choices on like who you spend time with and like, who you, who and what you invest your energy into.
9: The classes you take don't really matter. Like the subject matter itself doesn't matter that much. I'm not saying it's not important, but as in like, the details of the class aren't important. It's what you like like you're essentially learning how to think. For example, like if you're looking at, if you're you're doing like in like in, um, like the class I did, intelligence, national security, whatever, you might look at a lot of like, I don't know, like classified documents, like a certain kind of document, right? Like these very official, whatever transcripts. Information, like the details you use from the class are important because you can, in the future, you can draw on them as examples. But like ultimately, like what it's teaching you is how to think about them and how to approach problems. And then different kinds of classes, actually like they just have different kinds of thinking.
7: What is told me? me two things. The first is um, the first is being like an international student, it told me just how actually complex America is and how much depth there is to it that I didn't really imagine before coming here and just how many sides there are to it and how many. Yeah, just it's a very complicated and dense country in a lot of ways. Um, and the second is just how important it is who you choose to be around you in your life and how much that can mold you and shape you and change who you are and the way you see yourself. Um, and yeah, just how important it is to always make sure you have good people in your life. People that you really with. You really like.
6: To keep myself open to new things because I've tried a lot of th- different like, clubs and activities at Tufts, and I really have learned a lot from, from those experiences. And so, going forward, I I want to keep on um, or keep myself open to to what's gonna happen and um, not really shut myself off from from things that I'm scared of or. Things that I'm uncomfortable with because I think that's how you grow as a person. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. Our first segment featuring Pa de Panique was written and produced by Hannah Bregman, Suhasani Mehra, and Alexis Inderley. The segment on Greek life was written and produced by Emma Downs and Reina Matsumoto. The segment featuring Tufts seniors was written and produced by Jamie Gara and Dave Kikalra. The Observer podcast is executive produced by Florence Almeta and Sophia Pretell.